Good morning, Four Corners Church. Praise God for an opportunity to gather and sing songs like that, to meditate on the glory of our Savior, our Lord and Savior. We are so blessed to be here this morning to worship, to worship our God, and I pray that that is how you are feeling. We come to church with many different things going on in our heads, <laughs> especially if you have kids. Um, Lots of different things from before service, from after service, and, and, you know, who knows what's going on next week. We all feel different ways, too. You know, some people are here this morning, you feel pretty energetic, ready to listen and all of that. You feel zealous for the Lord, and some maybe this morning very lethargic, uh, feeling very dry. Uh, but regardless of where we are, we can trust that God's providence is supreme, and He for whatever condition we're in this morning, has us here together worshiping him. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans 10, verses 1 to 4. We're going to just dip our toe in this chapter this morning. Romans 10, verses 1 to 4. Those of you on this side over here are going to be a little... Uh, kind of on your own this morning, but I'll, I'll try to repeat things so that you can write them down because you won't be able to see them on the screen. Uh, but what we've seen since the beginning of chapter 9 is that really we're dealing with one topic. We've been talking about one big topic. And that topic is Israel's rejection of Christ, their stumbling, their failure. It's really important to notice that because we're not... We talked about election for a while. We get into various themes. You know, anytime you're going through chunks of Scripture, you get into various themes. But you don't want to lose the main idea of the author as you deal with those individual themes as you're going through. So it's important for us to constantly be going back to the big idea or the big topic of this chapter. And that is Israel's rejection of Christ, their stumbling, their failure. <clears throat> Paul is out preaching the gospel, and many Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. Now, uh, not you know, don't get the impression that Paul goes to Corinth or Thessalonica and half the city trusts Christ or uh, anything like that. We, we get a little picture of probably what's happening when Paul goes to Athens. Most laugh at him and some believe. And that's what's happening, but it's a lot of Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ. They are coming in and even flooding in as the centuries move forward. We'll see by the time we get to the fourth century, Christianity has all but taken over the Roman Empire. And you see through those early centuries the persecution that Christians endured, and yet the faith continued to grow as the early church father Tertullian said that uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church continued to grow and, and prosper, but it was largely, <clears throat> excuse me, in the time of Paul and thereafter, it was largely a Gentile church. God's chosen people, his chosen nation, has largely rejected God's salvation through Christ. Some Israelites... Some Jews, like Paul, have believed. Absolutely, the foundation of the church is, well, Christ is the cornerstone, but he builds the church on the foundation of the apostles, and the apostles were Jews. 
This all began in Galilee of Judea. Christ was crucified in Jerusalem, and the first major sermon was preached to Jews gathered in Jerusalem for the Jewish festival of Pentecost. So some Israelites, some Jews, like Paul, have believed, but most have not. Throughout chapter 9, Paul explains what's going on. And it really involves three major ideas. And you can write these down. In a way, they summarize the content of chapter 9. So let me go through them really quickly. Three ideas as Paul's trying to explain what is going on with Israel's rejection. And the first is this idea of true Israel. True Israel. Within the nation of Israel, there is true Israel. So Paul says explicitly in verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul's looking out. He's seeing all of his descendants. He's seeing all of his kinsmen according to the flesh. And what Paul is saying is that in the mind of God, in the heart of God, uh, that not all of those who are running around as literal offspring, ethnic offspring of Abraham, should be understood to be part of Israel. So within Israel, Paul does in fact have a, have a category for the nation, the people as a whole. But he also has a category for this true offspring of Abraham. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why when people talk about, is the church Israel? Has Israel replaced the church? Are the church and Israel distinct? That's one of the reasons this is so challenging for us in Romans 9 through 11. Because I really believe Paul is using this, this idea of Israel in different ways. And so what we find, one aspect of this is that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's the first idea, true Israel. Second, God's election. God, the sovereign potter, has elected some and not others. So verse 18 says, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So true Israel, that's a major category for Paul's explanation of what's going on. And then God's election. And then thirdly, the remnant. This idea of the remnant. While God has chosen to open the door wide to the Gentiles to show mercy to those who had not been shown mercy, he has only saved a remnant from Israel. That's where he ends in chapter 9, and that's what he'll pick back up with in chapter 11. He has only saved a remnant from Israel. Israel, the nation as a whole, has largely been hardened. The, the nation as a whole has been hardened like Pharaoh. That's what we are to understand given the logic that Paul has been uh, working through from chapter 9 and then going up through chapter 11. A remnant has been chosen and saved and the nation as a whole, largely, corporately, has been hardened. We get verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So what's going on? True Israel, God's election, and the remnant. But as we saw last week, there are two ways that you can answer the question, why? Why has Israel stumbled? Why has uh, Israel failed? Why have they rejected 
Christ? Why have they rejected God in Christ? And there are two answers to this question. Answer one is, as we just saw, because of God's election. The first answer to that question after reading chapter 9 has to be God's sovereign electing purposes. That's why. But there's a second part to that answer, and it is because of Israel's unbelief. Human responsibility. So divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Both of those answers are true. Both of those answers work. And both of those answers have to be held up if we are to comprehensively understand why Israel has rejected Christ. This aspect of human responsibility is where we left off last week as we looked at chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. And that's what will also occupy our attention today as we just lean in to chapter 10 with those first four verses. So in our passage for today, verses 1 to 4, Paul explains that Israel's rejection of Christ, their stumbling over the stumbling stone, is a religious rejection. They are a religious people. And we saw that last week. And much of what we're going to look at today is an extension of what we saw last week. But it is a religious rejection. And that's going to be the title, as you see up there, for our sermon this morning. So for those of you over here, the title for the sermon is a religious rejection. If you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's Word. No, we're not going to read all of chapter 9. We are in a new chapter now, but I think we do need to read chapter 9, verses 30 to 33 in order to see what's going on here at the beginning of chapter 10. So let's, let's do that now. Let's read these verses from God's Word. This is God's holy Word. It is perfect and profitable for His people. Beginning in chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then for our passage for today. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's talk to the Lord. Let's ask him to help us focus this morning. Uh, let's ask him to meet us where we are in uh, whatever condition we are. You know, there's a lot of different experiences represented this morning in this gathering. 
And we, we are asking that the Lord would graciously use his word to speak into our lives so that we would leave here changed. We would leave here. If you're not a Christian when you walked in, I'm praying that God would save you this morning, that he would make you new. And for all of us, that he would grow us into the likeness of Christ. That's where we're headed. That's what's going to happen. But we are increasingly seeing that as we're sanctified in this life. So let's ask God to do this work among us. Father, we are so thankful that we get to be here worshiping you together. Lord, our, our hearts are in different places. Our motives are in different places. Our, our, our attention, uh, it, it varies, Lord. But we pray right now by your Holy Spirit that you would gather us mentally under your word. That our minds would be attentive. That our hearts would be receptive And God, that you would graciously, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate your word. Give us understanding of Paul's meaning. Give us understanding of the Spirit-inspired meaning of this text. And take it, Lord, as it is not just uh, some historical document to be analyzed. But, Lord, it is your living word. And we pray that you would use it as a living, sharp sword this morning in each of our lives to do your surgical work of changing us, of sanctifying us, of lifting us up to see your glory. Father, we pray if there is anyone among us this morning who is unconverted, Lord, would you regenerate their hearts. We know that you do this by means of your word. And we pray, God, that as the seed is sown on hearts, that it would grow up and bear fruit. We pray that you would do that work among us, God. We ask for it as a matter of mercy because we know we do not deserve anything. We deserve to be in hell. We deserve to be dead. We deserve to be under your eternal judgment. And God, if anyone thinks differently than that, Father, I pray that you would would help us all to see that that is indeed the case. And Father, help us be grateful for any mercy, any mercy we receive from you. We ask that you would be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are four truths that emerge from Paul's discussion of Israel's rejection. Four truths that are going to be the four points for our uh, sermon this morning. And unfortunately for you guys, we have more points and, and more words this morning, those of you who can't see it on the screen, so I will, I'll try to say it a couple of times so that you can write it down if you are a note taker. Um, so four things, four truths that come up out of this passage as Paul is discussing the religious rejection of Israel. And so here they are. Election doesn't undermine prayer. Election doesn't undermine prayer. Secondly, zeal doesn't equal virtue. Zeal doesn't equal virtue. Thirdly, ignorance doesn't excuse sin. Ignorance doesn't excuse sin. And then finally, Christ doesn't need help. Christ doesn't need help. So let's look at the first of these. Election doesn't undermine prayer. Look with me at verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
here we get a return to the beginning of chapter 9. Paul's going right back to the place he was in mentally at the beginning of chapter 9, where Paul started talking about this topic of Israel's rejection. That's where we were first introduced to this topic, and that's where Paul began. As I've been saying before, Romans 9 through 11 is like a little mini-series within the larger series of Romans. And Paul began his little mini-series on this topic there at the beginning of chapter 9 in the same way that he does here. There we read in verses 1 to 3, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And listen listen to the intensity of this language. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And I had some conversations with you guys after... um, after that ser- the sermon on that passage and trying to, you know, can, can a person really want to give up their salvation for someone else? And what I tried to help you see is that uh, it, it's better when we read these words not to dissect them theologically, but rather to see them as a visceral, authentic response of this man, this apostle of uh, the living God who is tasked with evangelizing people to see this as a, as a visceral response, a real authentic heartfelt response of Paul rather than dissect it. Could Paul really give himself up for Israel? Should Paul want to do that? That's not the sort of thing that I think we are meant to, uh, to bend ourselves over about. But that's what we read at the beginning of chapter 9. Paul is here pulling back the veil at the beginning of chapter 9. And here again at the beginning of chapter 10, he is pulling back the veil to expose his heart. He is grieved over Israel's unbelief. Paul in no way, shape, or form has an oh well kind of mindset about Israel. In fact, could you you ever say about anything in your life that you've had great sorrow and unceasing anguish? I mean, so we'd have to think kind of hard. You know, we've, en- we've endured some hard things, but, but to, would, you, would you use that language of anything in your life? And of course, uh, some of us would say that. And if we thought long enough, uh, probably all of us would have things that come close to that. But, but Paul is expressing here a, a genuine desire, deep, heartfelt desire that Israel be saved. He is in anguish over the fact that they are not, over the fact that they have not been as Israelites coming to faith in Christ. He wants his Christian brothers, as he starts this chapter with the word brothers, he wants them to know this. He wants the Jews to know this, to understand he cares about his fellow Jews. He wants the Gentiles to know this so that they don't get all arrogant thinking that it's all about them. It's all about them. Like, you know, replacement theology. He doesn't want them to think that the Jews have just been thrown away. Many of them are Gentiles. He wants these Christian brothers to know how he feels about Israel. He is emphatic about it. So what is his response to this great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart? What is his response to his heart's desire for their salvation. How does he respond to this this visceral movement in his 
heart? And the answer is, he prays to God about it. He talks to the Lord. He prays as Jesus taught, undoubtedly, Abba, Abba, Father, Daddy. He prays to his heavenly Father about this anguish and desire in his heart. So let me ask this question. Just as we are moving through this, as we think about implications of the text for us, when our hearts are weighed down with grief or unmet desires, where do we turn? I mean, how often when the heart is weighed down, when the heart is zapped of its life, how often do we turn everywhere but prayer? I think the Apostle Paul is here modeling what he talks about in Philippians 4. He he does not want to venture into a sinful anxiety, a a sinful kind of worry. He, He is grieved in his heart. But what we see here is that he goes to the Lord about that in prayer. But then again, why in the world is Paul praying for Israel's salvation? I mean, hasn't he just spent an entire chapter explaining that the ultimate reason for their rejection is God's electing purposes? God has hardened them, pure and simple, right? God has hardened Israel. It's a done deal. Why in the world would Paul be praying about that? God is in control. God is directing everything. So why would Paul pray? What's the point? What's the use? If God is in control, then prayer is pointless, right? Well, you might be tempted to think this way. And I think we all have maybe asked that question before at some point. And it is, once again, another one of those questions that you hear for those who would argue against predestination. Uh, We've talked about some of those objections, some of those arguments, and Paul himself explicitly deals with some of them in Romans 9. But this is another one. Why pray for someone's salvation if God is the one who governs that, who is in control of that, and it all is happening according to his purposes. God's electing and our praying for people's salvation just don't go together, right? But what we see is that that's the opposite of what Paul does here in this verse. Though Paul is fully aware of God's election, he still prays. He prays that God would save Israel. And I I do think that part of what's going on here is that Paul is anticipating what he knows will happen at some point in the future. Kind of like you get in Daniel with Jeremiah's prophecy. Daniel knows what God has promised. And I think the same is true here with Paul. He knows that God is going to save Israel. Israel. He's praying for something that he is anticipating and knowing at some point in the future will happen. And we get there in Romans 11, verse 26. All Israel will be saved. So I think that's certainly part of what's going on. But, but here's the big idea that I want you to get at this point in the sermon. 
Election doesn't undermine prayer. And that's our point. Election doesn't undermine prayer. And to be more specific, election doesn't undermine evangelistic prayer. These two truths go together. God saves whom he wills, and we pray for people's salvation. God saves whom he wills, yes. We pray for people's salvation, yes. Uh, Several years ago, we went through uh, D.A. Carson's book, Praying with Paul, in our men's theology. And the women have gone through that as well, I think, in the past. And recently, uh, some of the women have gone through that also. It's a really great book. D.A. Carson just goes through and he looks at Paul's prayers, uh, helping to instruct us on what it looks like to pray fervently and to pray biblically. But one of the chapters in that book deals with this question of election and prayer, God's sovereignty and prayer. Carson affirms what the Bible teaches, what we've seen, that God is sovereign over salvation. So this is what he says in that book. Election never functions in Scripture to foster fatalism. It never functions to douse evangelistic zeal. And he goes on to say, certainly it never functions as a disincentive to pray. And we're seeing that here. Paul is illustrating. This is the point that you need to get. Paul is illustrating for us in his very own life, in his very own praying, this truth that the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of God's sovereignty in election and reprobation should not for us, and they do not in truth, undermine prayer. We should pray all the more. As Thomas Schreiner writes, prayer is one of the means God has ordained to accomplish his purposes. And you know what that tells me? That if you find yourself fervently praying for someone over a period of time, that may be a very wonderful, hopeful indicator that God is in fact using that to bring that person to faith in Christ. It's not, it's not a proven promise. It doesn't necessarily tell you that that's going to happen, but it's a good indicator that God uses prayer as a means for carrying out his sovereign purposes. So let me just say this to you. Keep praying. Keep Praying. And for those of you, you know, when I first came to Four Corners, uh, there were a, a lot of, and the demographic is still very similar, a lot of young couples, 20s and 30s, and then there, there was a, a bit of a skip um, until you got to 50s and early 60s. That, those were kind of the demographics of the church. And I think that's changed somewhat here, but we, that still kind of holds, I think, to some degree. And uh, one of the things that I noticed very, very quickly coming here is that uh, among those who are in their 50s and early 60s, there is, uh, I think, a common thread that they're working through as believers, that you all here are working through as believers. And, and I think you guys should support one another, help one another, pray for one another, find every way you can to get together and pray for one another's kids. But what, what, what I noticed was that there were one child, one grown child, or two grown children, who were unconverted, who were not believers. In some cases, that has changed, but in other cases, it has not. I just want to encourage you this morning, keep 
praying, and I'm sure you are, because you feel probably the same way Paul did about Israel, about your own children. Keep praying. Pray for your parents. Pray for your siblings. Pray for your neighbors. Pray with evangelistic zeal, believing all the while that God is in control, and yet praying. So that's the first truth that comes out of this, I think. The second is zeal doesn't equal virtue. Zeal doesn't equal virtue. Paul grounds his prayer for Israel in their religiosity, their zeal for God. He is praying for those who are zealous for God. He says that here. They are a religious bunch of people. And they are a religious bunch of people with reference to the true God, the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created the world out of nothing. The God who is not like the dumb idols of the nations who can neither speak nor act. He is the living God who governs all things for his glory and who is omnipotent and omniscient. Paul says this in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. When Paul thinks of unbelieving Israel, he thinks of himself. We have to remember this. Paul can't look at a Jewish person in the face who is stuck under what we're seeing here and not think of himself, not think of his own life, his own heart. He remembers his old way of life, the way of life that would still be marching on if it were not for Christ's intervention. If it were not for Christ's grace, that would still be moving along full steam ahead. Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and radically transformed his heart. Without that, Paul would be the object of his own preaching here. He wouldn't be preaching. Someone else would be doing it. God didn't need Paul. Someone else would be doing it. And Paul would be on the other end of this message. But that's not the case. Paul, by God's grace, has been made a Christian, first and foremost, and an apostle. Paul had been just like the Jews of his day before Christ saved him. He had an intensely religious zeal, a zeal for God. And he describes this throughout the New Testament. You could go through and you can collect all of these uh, places where Paul biographically describes his own experience before Christ. And uh, so I've, I've put together just a few of them here to, to show the zeal that he had as he explains it. So let me just read a few of these to you. Paul's zeal, his religious zeal. Acts 22, verses 3 to 4. To the Jews, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus. In Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, speaking of Christianity, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And then in Acts chapter 26, verses 4 to 5, he says this to King Agrippa. 
My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They know about me. They know my story. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. That was Paul's life. Philippians 3, 5 to 6, which we read earlier. Circumcised on the eighth day, he's describing himself. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Galatians 1, 14, this is the last one I'll give you. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. He was a first-class student. He was an A student among the Jewish, young Jewish scribal scholars of his day. He was the teacher's favorite. So extremely zealous. He doesn't just say so zealous. He says, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Can you imagine knowing Paul before he came to Christ? Praise God that all of the, those mental faculties and capacities were put to good use in the service of the gospel. But that is Paul. That was his life before. So as Paul writes this, he's not just throwing rocks at some straw man. He's not just beating up on somebody who's, who he knows nothing of that person's life, knows nothing of what it means to walk in their shoes. Paul has himself walked in those very shoes. We see here he recognizes the same zeal that he had. And it's interesting that when we read these descriptions, Paul associates his zeal for God. He doesn't refrain from calling it zeal for God, but he associates this zeal for God with persecuting Christians and strictly adhering to the traditions of his fathers. What marked his zeal? Killing believers, killing the people of God, and following the traditions of his fathers. He was a devoted student of the rabbinical traditions of the Jews that had come down to his day. We know from the Sermon on the Mount that these traditions of men had come to replace God's word for the Jewish leaders. Jesus says repeatedly, you have heard that it was said. And he doesn't just go back and quote the Old Testament. He, goes, he, he makes these quotes to the Old Testament and also to the rabbinical teaching. But what he shows, what Jesus is showing in the Sermon on the Mount, is that the religious teachers of his day, the scribes, the Pharisees, and others, they have perverted, they've twisted God's truth. And what the, the leaders in Jesus' day are concerned to know, to master, and to propagate is not the truth of God, it's not God's word, but it is the traditions of men. The Jewish situation had become one of following men rather than God. Their zeal for the God of Israel had been sucked dry of its knowledge of God. And so what was Jesus' verdict on all of this? We read it in Mark 7, 8. You, ha you leave the commandment of God and hold to, to the tradition of men. 
That's what the Jews in Paul's day were doing. They were abandoning, leaving the commandment of God, and they were adhering to, in the strictest fashion, the traditions of men. So what we have here is zeal without knowledge, zeal without truth. And although zeal, zeal is a good word generally, And although zeal is typically described in positive terms in the scriptures, what we see here is that it becomes a vicious thing, a destructive thing when it lacks knowledge of the truth. When zeal is is emptied of the truth of God, of knowledge, it can become an awful thing. Just think of the final solution of the Third Reich. Zeal to exterminate the Jews. Just think of the zeal and passion of many in our world that has caused destruction in its wake. Zeal without Scripture, zeal without the illumination of the Holy Spirit becomes fanaticism, as John Stott puts it. So let me just say this to us, I think by way of implication. Make sure, Christian even, those who are not a Christian, think about this in your own life. Make sure that your passion and discipline are governed by biblical gospel truth. Don't just pat yourself on the back because you're a pretty passionate person. Don't just pat pat yourself on the back because you're a pretty zealous person. Rather, make sure that whatever passion, whatever zeal you may have, that it is governed by gospel truth. Sincerity, care, zeal in the wrong direction profits nothing. And it can become incredibly destructive. Let me give you a great quote from John Calvin as he quotes Augustine. He says this, Away then, with these vain evasions as to good intention. He's there associating zeal with sincerity. If we seek God sincerely, let us follow the way by which alone we can come to know him. For it is better, I love this quote, it is better, as Augustine says, even to go limping in the right way than to run with all our might out of the way. Better to crawl in the right direction than to zealously, fervently, in a careful, disciplined way, with all your might, go off the cliff. So that's what we have here with Israel, zeal without knowledge. So so that was our second point, zeal doesn't equal virtue. Thirdly, ignorance doesn't excuse sin. Ignorance doesn't excuse sin. Look at verse 3. Just taking these verses one at a time. Verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That's what's happened. There's the core of this passage. Let me read it again. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, simply reading 
verse 2 by itself, you might be tempted to think that Israel is off the hook. You read verse 2, and you might be tempted, if it stands alone, to think that Israel is off the hook. They weren't really responsible for their unbelief. I mean, they didn't know, right? They were ignorant. That's what was going on. They just didn't know. You know, had they known, it would have been okay, but they were ignorant. They just didn't know. Just let them off the hook. Doesn't Paul say that they had zeal for God? I mean, come on. That's a good thing, right? He says they had zeal for God, but they lacked knowledge. But Paul's language here in verse 3 will not allow the reader to make that mistake. We can't read verse 2 in light of verse 3 and make the mistake of thinking that Israel's off the hook. They don't bear responsibility for the ignorance that they have. Grammatically, the main clause here in the Greek text is they did not submit to God's righteousness. It's really important to look at the grammar. And what we find it typically is that there are, there are main clauses and then there are subordinate clauses. And uh, just you, you can let this go over if, it, if it's headed that way. Uh, but there are main clauses and there are subordinate clauses. And what you're looking for grammatically, if you're trying to understand what the main idea is, the main clause and the subordinate clauses help to sort of qualify that main idea in the main clause. Well, well, here, the main clause is they did not submit to God's righteousness. You got to get through those two subordinate clauses to get down to that. That's the main idea. That Paul drives at here. They did not submit to God's righteousness. At the heart of Israel's unbelief is not ignorance, but rebellion. Rebellion. A lack of submission to their God. They had gone their own way. They had rejected his word. And we see this culpability later in verse 21. And you can go ahead and look ahead. You're seeing uh, these early verses in chapter 10, but go ahead and look to verse 21, and you see that this ignorance at its core is rebellion. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So what is going on with Israel? They are being disobedient and contrary in their ignorance. Also, notice what Paul associates with their ignorance. He says they were simultaneously ignorant of the righteousness of God. So now we're going to those subordinate clauses. He says that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God and parallel to that, seeking to establish their own righteousness. Both of those things are marching along together. Ignorance and pursuing their own righteousness or seeking to hold up, construct, establish, set in place their own righteousness. Were they seeking to understand the righteousness of God given by grace through faith? Were they seeking to understand Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness? Were they seeking to understand Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by faith? Were they seeking to understand all the examples given in Hebrews 11 of faith? working itself out in life? No. Instead, they were busy trying to establish their own righteousness. They were busy building their own little tower of Babel in their own self-righteousness. And all the worse, 
based on the traditions of men. Building up their own tower based on the traditions of men. Not seeking the gift of God's grace through faith. Not trusting in God to keep his promises. Instead, they were seeking to build up credit with God so that he would owe them. You owe me, God. They were assuming they would get to heaven and God would give them all kinds of praise. You did it. You did it so well. You did this and you did that and there would just be this party, this feast where all their works would just be laid out and everyone would walk in the room and clap and and it would just be one big glory fest for them. You see how rotten that is in our hearts? It's in everyone. To ensure their own destiny with their own self-righteous efforts. Instead of faith in God, listen to this, They had faith in self. Instead of trusting in God, they trusted in themselves. Instead of seeking to know God by faith as Abraham had, instead of walking in the footsteps of Abraham, as Paul says in Romans 4, they sought to pridefully raise themselves above others and establish their own glory among men. And that's exactly what Jesus says in John 5, 44. How can you believe? How can you come to know? Jesus is saying, how can you come to see? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Yes, it can be called zeal for God, but what is it really? Glory seeking from men. That desire in all of us to be scooped up among our peers. It starts when we're really little. That desire in all of us to find our little niche, to find our little piece of ground for the pride of life to park itself on. How often do we do that? We, we identify ourselves in a certain way with a certain thing or a certain, a, a certain set of characteristics. We are this. We are this. We carve out a little niche for ourselves in life. And that's where we just park the pride of life. That's where we sit. That's where we find our identity. And it's in that that we enjoy the praise of men. We enjoy to be glorified. That was the problem. Seeking that glory rather than the glory from God. So what's my point? Israel's ignorance was a willful ignorance. It was a culpable ignorance. And this ignorance did not excuse their sin. So how does this apply to us? Well, I think the same is basically true for us. Now, obviously, we have uh, their specificity here. But I think the same is true for us. Instead of pleading ignorance... Instead of excusing ourselves with ignorance, run to the truth. Come to know all that you can about the Lord. Why is it that we find Paul repeatedly, especially in Colossians and in Ephesians, praying that the saints of God would come to know, would come to know that God would enlighten the eyes of their heart. It is not okay to stay ignorant. In fact, to stay ignorant is to be willfully ignorant. 
God holds us accountable in this life to know all that we can about him and his purposes, to eagerly pursue knowledge of the truth. Not just vain academic knowledge, fun facts, Bible trivia, or whatever, but to know God with our hearts, to know God with our minds, that we might worship him with a pure heart. That is what we ought to do rather than remain in a pool of our own ignorance. Finally, this morning we come to this fourth point, Christ doesn't need help. If the last verse, verse three, was the center of the passage, this is the culmination of the passage, this is the crown on top, Christ doesn't need help. Look with me at verse four as we finish up this morning. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And you'll see a little note there. Uh, I just want to mention this in your Bible. I think the NASB and the ESV translate this well. Uh, there is a lot of debate uh, among commentators as to the grammar. Uh, but I, I, I'm going to proceed with this particular translation. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who Believes. I think it fits well in the context coming out of what's said in verse 3. While the Jews of Paul's day were busy seeking their own righteousness, Christ was being preached. So there they are, building. Stones, mortar, building. And all the while, Christ is being preached. Now, early on, Paul began in the synagogues. He would go in the synagogues. He'd preach the gospel to the Jews. But the Jews were largely unwilling to accept his message. If he was turned away on Mars Hill, as he was there with the Athenians, those men of great classical learning, if, if he was turned away by them, how much more was he turned away by the Jews when he ventured into the synagogues. They were unwilling to accept his message. Their pursuit of establishing their own righteousness through law keeping was entirely out of sync with Paul's gospel. These two things are entirely contradictory. Paul's gospel or God's gospel revealed to Paul and the other apostles is that man is depraved. Man is Thoroughly, pervasively sinful in his thinking, speaking, willing, loving, and doing. In every part of human capacity, we are sinful, depraved, helpless. There is absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Our work is in vain. It is not that we are flawed. Oh, no. It is not that we just fall short, although we fall short of the glory of God, as Paul explicitly says. But it is not that we are just flawed people, or that we fall short, or that we make mistakes. Don't you love that when people talk about sin as making mistakes? No, it's none of those things. It is that we are thoroughly rebellious against the living God. We are law breakers. We are God haters. We love self at the expense of everybody else 
around us. And as we just saw, we love to be praised. This is the human condition. Nothing that we could possibly do in our own efforts to be righteous with God. We need the work of another. We cannot fulfill the law. So we need one who fulfilled the law in our place. Christ is the Redeemer. He buys us back from the slavery I just described. He ransoms us. He liberates us from that state. He is the sacrificial substitute. He takes the place. Where death is deserved, Christ steps in and dies in the place of those who deserve it. He is the perfect law keeper. He did none of those things I just mentioned, and he never made even a mistake. He never was flawed. He never fell short. He was perfect in every conceivable way, and in his glorious incarnate existence, he obeyed in all of his thinking, in all of his willing, in all of his speaking and doing and loving. He obeyed God's law perfectly. He is glorious and holy. Spotless is he. The lamb led to the slaughter. To to embrace Christ is to recognize our hopeless, helpless state of being lost in sin. You cannot embrace Christ and retain any notion that you've got good in you, that you've got righteousness in you, and that your works somehow please God. We must abandon all of that, as Paul says so eloquently in Philippians 3, as we take hold of our only hope, who is Christ. To embrace Christ is to recognize what Paul says in Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. Not one, not at all. And for that reason, for that reason, Christ puts an end to all efforts to bring about our own righteousness. To those who believe in Christ, following a law for our righteousness is terminated. It is put entirely to an end. When we embrace Christ, all efforts to justify self through works dies. It dies. That entire enterprise is put to death. Why? Why is that? And here's the big idea that I want you to see. Because Christ doesn't need help. Christ doesn't need your help. Christ doesn't need my little meager efforts to supplement. Christ needs no supplement. Christ is fully sufficient to take away all our sins. Christ alone. Christ apart from the law. Christ apart from works. There's not a single work that we could do that would add anything to Christ's finished work, which he said on the cross 
John 19, 30, it is finished. There's nothing you could do to add to that. Nothing. All our works, as Isaiah 64, 6 says, are like filthy rags. Disgusting. Dirty. Cannot merit anything from God. And they're always, even as Christians, tainted. Always tainted. They're always imperfect. There's no such thing as a perfect work. Even for a born-again, growing, sanctified Christian. That whole idea in the holiness movement, coming out of the Methodist movement, that whole idea of perfectionism, totally contrary to what we find in Scripture. The closer we get to God, the more we grow in God, the more we see the filthiness of those rags, the more we realize and long for the day that Christ returns and we will be conformed to his image. All our works are like filthy rags, even as believers. But Christ's work was perfect. And God showed that Christ's work was perfect by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is filled with meaning. It is filled with power. One of the things that the resurrection tells us is that God was in fact pleased with his son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The resurrection proves that that is true, that God is pleased with Christ. He is pleased with Christ's law keeping. He is pleased with Christ's substitutionary sacrifice and he has exalted him and he has passed through the heavens and all who trust in him will not be put to shame. But all who trust in their own works will spend an eternity living in shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. Lord, how how deeply helpless we are in ourselves. And Lord, our works are as nothing. And in fact, produce some of the most disgusting things like self-righteousness and pride and hatred, envy. Lord, we pray that we would more and more cling to Christ. We would look to his finished work as Christians and that we would just draw such strength and hope from that rock of our salvation. Father, I pray if there's anyone among us this morning who is a religious person, uh, a religious zealot maybe even, but who just does not know Jesus, uh, they are counting works, they are building a tower, trying to earn points, hoping, assuming that it will work out in the end and God will recognize the glory of their deeds. Father, I pray that you would just shatter that. Lord, that you would show them this morning that they need that that finished work of Jesus Christ. They need him.
They need him to cover them with his blood. They need him as their advocate and intercessor. They need him as the one who has passed through the heavens, seated at your right hand, enjoying eternal bliss, that in him we will enjoy the same. God, I pray that they would see that through this message today, through this text, and God, that you would radically change their hearts, Lord. Be merciful to us all, we pray in Christ's name. And Lord, we thank you for the Lord's Supper. We pray that as we do this, we would indeed remember what Christ did for us and commune with him in his name. Amen. If you'll be serving the Lord's Supper this morning,